0: You're listening to the Talking Rheumatology Research Podcast, brought to you by the British Society for Rheumatology. I'm David Liu, rheumatologist and clinical pharmacologist in Melbourne, Australia, and it's my absolute pleasure here today to speak to Professor Peter Taylor, a man who needs little introduction, but he's also the first author of a article in Rheumatology Advances in Practice, entitled Real-Life Drug Persistence in Patients with Rheumatic Diseases Treated with CTP13, a Prospective Observational Cohort Study, a persist study. So Professor Taylor, would you like to introduce yourself to our audience?
1: Hi, David. Well, it's a huge pleasure to join you. So my name is Peter Taylor. I'm a rheumatologist in Oxford in the United Kingdom, and I hold an academic position in a university and I have an honorary position within our health service.
0: Fantastic. Well, CTP13, which is known as Remisma or Inflectra in different markets, was really the first widely used biosimilar of biologic DMARD, of Infliximab. And when we've talked about biosimilars, we've always asked questions about the potential for immunogenicity and what that might mean for drug persistence for patients and drug safety. So maybe you could give us a little bit of an overview as to what this paper entails and what the study sought to do.
1: Well, thank you, David. Well, you're absolutely right. This was in the early days of biosimilars, and you've articulated some of the concerns that many of us had at the time. And in fact, the regulatory definition of a biosimilar even then was such that we knew that there would be very similar biologic action in vitro with respect to the activities of the antibody. But some unanswered questions were whether post-translational modifications of uh, an originator might result in differences in immunogenicity and therefore differences in potential persistence of the biosimilar in patients eligible to receive the drug. So as originally conceived, this was conceived as an observational prospective open label study for patients with three different conditions, rheumatoid arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis and psoriatic arthritis, who would meet local eligibility criteria to receive um, infliximab either originator or the biosimilar. And this was conducted across 38 different countries and so of course the particular rules for eligibility may have differed somewhat from one country to another. And uh, what we did was to recruit patients across these countries, and the originally conceived study was to look at a certain proportion of patients who were naive to biologics and therefore starting on the biosimilar infliximab as their first biologic. And then there would be other patients who, for uh, reasons at the discretion of the prescribing physician, were going to be switched from originator infliximab to the biosimilar. And then we followed the the progress of these patients over the course of two years. So at the time, again, that the study was started, this was unusual because the two-year observation period was relatively long, whereas various registry data that had emerged had looked at much shorter observation periods than, than that. Uh, However, as often is the case for clinical researchers, as you and I know, David, uh, there were some complications on the way. So the company that was actually marketing the biosimilar was taken over by another company, uh, and that's caused a few changes in the protocol of the study. Uh, And uh, furthermore, it also really slowed down the rate of recruitment into the study. So we ended up with just over 330 patients analyzed, whereas our original conception had been a much larger observational cohort.
0: It's still nevertheless a good sized cohort and two years is, I mean, that's usually the amount of time that we'd expect to see any meaningful clinical immunogenicity develop, I guess.
1: Exactly. And I think uh, looking at registry data in particular, we do see attrition in use of anti-TNFs. And I think there were several interesting things that emerged from this study. Firstly, and very reassuringly, the data that emerged for the biosimilar was really no different to that we would expect from the originator. And I think that came as a, a very big reassurance but there were some interesting points to note. So in fact, looking at the mean persistence over time across the three different disease phenotypes, it was about 449 days. The median, however, was very much longer. It was over 600 days. And therefore that's telling us that there must be quite a proportion, a small proportion of patients with a relatively short duration on on drug. Uh, And indeed, that turned out to be the case. And furthermore, it turned out that the persistence for the patients with ankylosing spondylitis and psoriatic arthritis was rather more than that for the rheumatoid patients. And I think that also um, tallies closely with what we might have expected, because the issue with immune responses to administered biologic is more of a problem in rheumatoid than it seems to be for psoriatic arthritis and for ankylosing spondylitis. And this probably reflects very different aspects of pathobiology of disease across the three phenotypes.
0: I mean, I think that's, it's useful as well from a clinician's point of view to be able to have um, that broader variety of different patients to refer to. I mean, that's what North right. Switch looked at uh, when with yes. single switch as well with CTP13. And I guess it does mean though that they were getting dosed at different intervals um, to some extent.
1: Well, that's absolutely right. So in fact, most of the patients were either receiving intravenous drug once every six weeks or eight weeks. There was a fairly even split. But in fact, the mean dose of infliximab was about three and three quarter milligrams per kilogram across the population as a whole. And of course, we have to bear in mind that there may have been differences in the initially approved dose across the indications. So it might have been higher for the psoriatic arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis patients than the rheumatoids. And what I didn't mention, but perhaps should, that's relevant to this part of the discussion is that the rheumatoids comprised about 40% of the study population
0: do we see any difference between the drug persistence between different doses? I think that's always a question, isn't it, really, about if you've got longer intervals between doses, maybe the discontinuity might lead to greater immunogenicity. Yes, it's a
1: great question, David, and actually a very clear message emerged. So the patients who were receiving the drug once every six weeks had better persistence and fewer problems, interestingly, than the patients receiving drug once every eight weeks. And, And I think, in the era of biosimilars, this is a really important message because clinicians like ourselves have to walk a tightrope where the payers on the one hand want to spend as little money as possible and therefore would like to have the lowest possible dose. And they'll often justify that by saying that there's likely to be a dose relationship to any toxicity. And so, in a way, they, they get away with spending as little as possible. But on the other hand, uh, many clinicians would like to treat patients, particularly with more severe disease, with a, with a higher dose that captures better disease control. And in this particular study, and we have to interpret it with some caution because it was an observational study, there was no control arm here. But as you imply, the, the patients who had a higher dose exposure overall had a better persistence, and in fact, the patients coming off drug, there were fewer patients coming off drug because of certain minor complications, interestingly.
0: And let's get to that. I think as rheumatologists, we're always conscious of safety. And one of the questions at the beginning of the biosimilar era had always been whether maybe might there be an increased risk of immunogenicity and might some adverse events follow from immunogenicity? Is this something that this cohort has helped to reassure us about?
1: Well, I think it has, uh, although I think we also have to remember that any reassurance is very specific to this particular biosimilar, because of course there could be other issues with others, and that's a challenge, whether these findings can be more generalised. But to, to come to the point here, in fact, the patients who discontinued because of infusion reactions, and there were some, it was a small percentage, exactly the sort of percentage that we've seen in observational studies on Originator. And In fact, it happened less for the patients on on the higher dose, which again we'd expect because immunogenicity we know is related to whether or not the patients are taking concomitant methotrexate in the case of the rheumatoids, but it's also related to dose, the higher the dose, the less the immunogenicity as a general rule we didn't actually measure anti-drug antibodies in this study. So what I'm not able to give any clear-cut information about is immunogenicity in a really objective sense. But what I am able to convey information about is persistence that was related to any infusion reactions. And there, the the percentages were small. It was down at about 10%, something like that, with that drug relationship that I mentioned.
0: I think... Overall, uh, CTP thirteen, we've had quite a broad experience with that. Now, really, over the course of time, uh, the world hasn't uh, ended, and the, the sky hasn't quite quite fallen in. Uh, we've had utilization. But do you think that this is this kind of real world data gives us reassurance going forward to for this biosimilar? And then, what do you think it means for other biosimilars?
1: Well, th- this also is a very interesting question, and, and I think it does add to the enormous body of data overall that's hugely reassuring. So just to to recap on what the issues are, and I think in the early days of biosimilars, we were all very satisfied that the biological function of the antibody, the biosimilar antibody, would be as near identical as possible to the originator because of the very rigorous requirements in order to meet the regulatory definition of biosimilarity. And I think that has been well and truly confirmed. But in fact, what was happening in the early days of biosimilars is that the clinical Component of the data. The clinical trial was in fact only the tip of the iceberg, as it were, so less than 10% of the total data, and with relatively small numbers. So many of the clinical trials that compared head-to-head, the originator and the biosimilar, were looking at small numbers and usually over a short period of exposure, perhaps only six months in the first instance And that didn't address the question as to whether any post-translational modifications of the protein could affect immunogenicity and attrition and loss of effect over time of longer intervals. And so this particular study, the persist study, I think gave a great deal of reassurance about that as applied to this particular drug, CTP13. But when we look now across the body of data we have on other drugs, I think we're seeing very, very similar data. And here's a little thought for the future, David, I, I think the data has become so compelling for biosimilars as a whole, both with respect to safety, tolerability, and immunogenicity issues that one can conceive of a day when it won't be necessary to do any clinical trials at all, if you can show that the biological attributes of the biosimilar are sufficiently similar uh, or near identical to those of the originator. And I think that time will come. And of course, the advantage of that, if it does come, is that it may reduce costs further, um, and that would be welcome. The, The disadvantage is it may still leave some question marks in the minds of the cynical.
0: Well, that's certainly given us plenty of food for thought. Thank you very much for that, Professor Taylor. And uh, thank you for joining us today on the podcast.
1: David, it's been a huge pleasure. Take care.
0: Thank you for listening to Talking Rheumatology Research, brought to you by BSR. Please do rate, share and subscribe through your favourite podcast app.